Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. There is no demilitarized zone, no neutral ground. You are a partisan in one of those two cities in this conflict. You are either fighting for the city of God and against the city of man, or you are in the city of man fighting against the city of God. Known as the city of love or the city of brotherly love, she was also known as a faithful church. Hi there. Welcome to Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Today, we turn our attention back to Revelation chapter 3 as our series on the seven churches continues. Today and the rest of the week, we take a look at the faithful church, the church at Philadelphia. Join us as we understand what this faithful church was all about and the encouragement and spur that you and I receive from this church to be just like her. With more, here's Pastor Gary, today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Today is the Seven Churches, Part 5. Remember, the first thing you have to ask about the book of Revelation is not, what does it mean to us here in 2020, but what did it mean to the recipients of the book? What did this book mean to the congregations to whom it was written in the first century. So we always have to ask ourselves the question, what was the original intent of John the Apostle in the figures of speech and all of the symbolism he used in the book? And what was his intent for the people in the first century in these seven churches to understand all these things? We saw in quick summary that the book of Revelation is about Christ and how he destroys the two main enemies of the church in the first century. The first enemy that he destroyed was Jerusalem or apostate Judaism. That takes a big section of the book after the introduction and the letters to the seven churches. Then the second enemy of the church in the first century was anti-Christian tyrannical Rome. So, the last part of the book, just before the conclusion and climax, talks about how Christ will destroy Rome. Now, the way we apply all of this today is that an apostate religion, any apostate religion, or any tyrannical government that persecutes the church the way apostate Judaism and the Roman Empire persecuted the church in the first century, will themselves be destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a great book of victory and a practical book for us today. Now, each one of these letters to the churches begins with 
Jesus giving you some identification of himself in the way that is pertinent to what he is going to say to these churches and most of what he says in identifying himself in these to these seven churches come from chapter 1 verses 11 and following in that gorgeous picture of our exalted Christ so how does he identify himself here well, we'll look at that in just a minute but before we look at that though let's talk about the city of Philadelphia Philadelphia, because each of us, uh, each of the incidents of these churches um, uh, about, and the particular cities they're in uh, and where they're located uh, can actually help us understand a little bit more about the richness of John's symbolism. So here is some of the information about the city of Philadelphia. It was called the Gateway to the East because it was perfectly located to spread the Greek language, the Greek culture, Greek and Roman civilization uh, to the east. And by doing that, uniting the entire Roman Empire. In other words, the city's function was to bring about a pragmatic cultural synthesis with the Roman Empire. That is, to take the Greek and Roman culture, thought and philosophy, blended in with all the various other ethnic worldviews of the Roman Empire into one great civil religion, and Philadelphia was perfectly located to bring that about. Another thing about Philadelphia that's important to remember is that it was built on burnt land. In other words, the city sat on a volcano. In fact, it was one of the most fertile plains in all of the world at this time because around the city of Philadelphia, mixed with the soil, was volcanic ash, making it a great area for agriculture. It was an area particularly known for its grapes and its wine. It was also rich with hot springs, as you can probably imagine, since it was sitting on a volcano. So it was actually a center for arthritic therapy. But I'm sure you can imagine what one of the dangers of the city was. The volcano was still alive. It continued to erupt. There were constant tremors that often devastated the city. And you never knew when that volcano was going to explode. And so... As a result, the people of Philadelphia were frequently fleeing the city. Now, there's an interesting thing about pillars in this city. Philadelphia was called the new Caesarea. The old Caesarea, of course, and you see the word Caesar there in Caesarea, was ruined in an earthquake in around 17 AD. So Caesar Tiberius rebuilt it, called it Philadelphia, and he dedicated it to himself. Thus, Caesarea, the new city, because Tiberius Caesar was the god of the state, though Caesar of Rome decided that he would dedicate this city to himself. In this new city, men were rewarded 
for their good works on behalf of the city by erecting pillars in their honor and then describing, inscribing the names of these hero citizens on the pillars. And I want you to remember that as I go on because we'll come back to this subject a little later on. When one would go to Philadelphia, though, he would see these pillars everywhere. Now, before we go on, I'd like to give a few words of application here. Philadelphia had a utopian goal, and that was to spread the philosophy and worldview and the culture and civilization of Greece and Rome, a classic civilization, to unify the empire with a never-ending peace. Of course, it never reached those goals. As man sets goals for himself, which only God can truly reach, God works toward bringing their efforts and their works and their plans to nothing, thus always leading to the destruction of the city of man. Augustine said in his great philosophy of history that history is the story of two cities, the city of God and the city of man, and they are in constant warfare with each other. The prime trait of those in the city of God is their love for God while the primary trait of those in the city of man is their love for themselves. And these two cities are locked in conflict. They will do battle throughout history until the city of God wins the victory over the city of man. So this is one of those places here in our our text where Augustine could have gotten his idea. Man sets all up of these utopian goals of what he wants civilization and society and culture to be, but he cannot bring any of his goals to fruition because Almighty God will stop him in his tracks and eventually destroy all of those civilizations built upon the principle of revolt against God. The closer a society comes to its dead end and to its cultural bankruptcy, the more susceptible, beloved, is to our gospel, which is, of course, what we're called to declare, which is, without Christ, you can do nothing. You can reach no worthwhile goals. But with Christ, all things are possible. So as we see our culture, our humanistic culture with its coercive utopianism, the bankruptcy of humanism is seen all over the land, everywhere you turn. So my friends, we should never wring our hands in fear. This is the perfect time for us to preach the gospel when the world trusts in the gods of the state and the gods of man, and those gods are failing them, and they are becoming discouraged, and they're becoming neurotic and bankrupt and homeless and jobless and all of the rest, then is our opportune time to preach the gospel that without Christ, you can do nothing, but with Christ, all things are possible. 
So do not let any decline or lapse in this culture discourage you. People are ready to hear the truth and real answers to their problems. And you as Christians are the only one who has those answers. Take advantage of it. Because as I live, I see in our culture that the tares are looking more like tares and the wheat are looking more like wheat. That is, you can tell the difference more than you could 20, 25 years ago between true Christians and non-Christians and even fake or false Christians. And that is an opportune time. As the world sees our Christian culture flower and flourish. And there is a collapse in theirs. It is a great time to preach the gospel. It's not a time for despair. Well, let's talk about how Christ identifies himself here. He does it in a, in a way that contrasts with the city of Philadelphia. It says in verse 7, He who is holy, who is true, who has the king of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this. So he identifies himself as someone who is holy, who is true, with the keys of David. That is, in contrast to the city of Philadelphia, even though it had a great name, the city of brotherly love. It thought that it could export that brotherly love all over the Roman Empire. It boasted and was proud of its accomplishments and of its beauty, but it was never able to carry out its goals. You see, it was unrighteous. It was idolatrous. It was immoral. And in contrast to that is our Lord Jesus Christ, who was holy and true. His holiness, his beauty, his brotherly love, as it were, his faithfulness are all true. That is, they are not imaginary. They are not phony. Philadelphia, on the other hand, had an imaginary view of itself. Its greatness, its brotherly love was a figment of its imagination. In contrast to that, Jesus is truly true and truly holy. And he is separate from the immorality and the idolatry of Philadelphia. It is as if he said to Philadelphia, I am the one before whom your boasted attainments become the midnight blackness of infinite guilt. I am he whom your phony profession of goodness is revealed on the empty foam of hypocrisy. And unless you repent, you will perish. So Jesus stands in stark contrast to the character of the Philadelphians. He says, though you see yourselves, he could have said, as rich and intellectual and popular and cultured and polished, you as men and women without Christ are only wretched, hopeless, dying sinners living on top of a volcano I control. Now remember, 
The one thing about Augustine's philosophy as history is there is an inevitable conflict. You can't escape it. Don't act like it's not there, brothers and sisters. There is a history-long inevitable conflict between the city of God and the city of man. You are partisan of one or the other. There is no demilitarized zone, no neutral ground. You are a partisan in one of those two cities in this conflict. You are either fighting for the city of God and against the city of man, or you are in the city of man fighting against the city of God. But it is not an eternal conflict. It is a conflict that will be resolved once and for all at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But whatever you do, don't be naive about this culture. Don't ever think that it likes you. Don't think it's going to take care of you. The more you look like true wheat, the more you'll realize what an enemy this culture is to you. It won't let you forget. So don't be naive and be caught off guard. Then Jesus also contrasts his power with that of the city. It thought it was a gateway to the east, a powerful city. But Jesus says, he who is holy, he who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this. Therefore, the city of Philadelphia was not able to reach its utopian goals. For Christ has irresistible, invincible power over all of his enemies to bring them down as well as to protect the church. Now, what is this key of David? In the Bible, a key is a symbol of rule. It is a symbol of authority. And there are a couple of chapters in Isaiah that talk about this awesome power and authority and government of the Lord Jesus Christ. For instance, in Isaiah 9, it says, the government is on his shoulder, and that is a messianic prophecy. Now, if I were to ask you what is in Washington, D.C., and you were to answer me, well, the government, I would most certainly correct you. Because that shows how influenced you are by humanism. The government that is without any adjectives is on Christ's shoulders. It's not in Washington, D.C. There is a federal government in Washington, D.C. There is a state government in Sacramento, California. There is a church government in the session here at RHC. There is a family government in U parents, there is individual government. But whenever you talk about government, don't ever use the word without a restrictive adjective as to imply that the government of the state has unlimited, unrestricted, boundless rule and authority over us to tell us what to do. The only time you can use the phrase, the government without any restrictive adjectives, is when you talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, 
the government, an all-powerful government, unlimited over all things throughout all time and eternity, is on his shoulders. Philadelphia thought they had the government. Rome thought they had the government. But Christ has the government. And then it goes on in Isaiah 9. The government is on his shoulders. And of the increase of his peace, there will be no end. That is, the restoration of God's order and the advance of Christ's kingdom, which means peace, will continue to increase until all governments and orders against Christ's peace are put down and he comes again. So his kingdom and his peace and his moral order will keep on increasing and nothing will be able to stop it. Now, if you compare that with the modern view of fundamentalism, that the power of the church will keep decreasing until finally the Antichrist just eats up the church. You see, it just does not fit with things in Isaiah 9 that says the church is under the authority of Christ and the authority of Christ will not diminish in this world, but the peace of Christ's government will continue to increase until it encompasses heaven and earth at the second coming of Jesus Christ, who is our supreme Lord. Then you have this statement in Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. Then I will set the key, says the Lord, by the house of David on his shoulder, When he opens, no one will shut, and when he shuts, no one will open. Now, that's a great example of the fact that I have brought out many times that most of the symbols in the book of Revelation are explained earlier in the Bible, and those times when certain figures of speech and symbols are used in the book of Revelation without having some reference earlier in Scripture are always explained in the text itself. But here is one example where a figure of speech is taken right out of messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah that says, Christ is given the key of the kingdom of David. It is on his shoulder. That is government and all power and authority, like he actually told us in his ascension, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, because he has all-encompassing power, he says, whenever I open a door, no one will ever be able to shut that door, and when I shut a door, no one will ever be able to open it. Well, before we look to see what that door is, I'd like to make a few applications more of what we have been learning about Christ. The servant in Christ is never, listen, is never without a message to the lost. Because Christ is exactly, exactly what he claims to be. So we can can confidently proclaim his as a perfect Savior anywhere, anytime, to anyone, even to the best that mankind can produce before us. Understand that the message of the gospel is that Jesus is holy and true and that he holds the king keys of David. 
that He is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, the ruler of the kings of the earth who is in total control. And His government is over all the governments of men. Brothers and sisters, what a message that is. And that'll bring us to the end of our time today here on Abounding Grace with our teacher and pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Thank you for joining us today. It's our hope and prayer that we've been able to encourage you in Christ and stimulate your walk in Him. To address questions, comments, prayer requests, or concerns, please call or write to us. We'd love to talk with you. 408-866-5607 is our phone number, 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to visit our website. Drop us an email when you do, reformedheritage.org. Real simple, reformedheritage.org. A lot of information there about who we are. We would invite you again to stop by, reformedheritage.org. Or if you're writing to us, the address is PMB, post mailbox, 402, and the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, 95032. That address can be found on our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, simply call 408-866-5607. Copies of today's program are just $5. Mention today's date and we'll get a CD out to you. And please remember that we are listener-supported, which means when you link arms with us financially, we're able to continue the ministry here on this station. It's a great way to study God's Word together, isn't it? And we'd love to continue to do so. Would you prayerfully consider how God might be leading you to partner with us? We'd love to hear from you. Again, won't you call 408-866-5607 or reformedheritage.org. Sunday services, by the way, if you'd like to join us, are 2 in the afternoon. We're located at Lone Hill Church, 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org. Again, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. Further information can be found again at reformedheritage.org or by calling 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, God bless. (music) 